Welcome to Street Smart Success. This is Roger Becker, your host. There's no substitute for experience and focus. A lot of risk is mitigated by becoming an expert in one thing and doing it over and over. As an investor, you want to invest with people that have mastered one thing. Ivan Barrett, founder of BAM, a fully vertically integrated multifamily syndicator out of Indianapolis, has dominated his local market and has generated exceptional returns for his investors. So today we have with us a gentleman who is uh, back for round two. Uh, on Street Smart Success, we uh, we did a podcast together uh, 15 months or so ish ago, and he is one of these guys I have untold respect for because he's so focused and so smart and is legitimately vertically integrated. He's not in a hundred different markets doing a hundred different asset classes has an incredible track record, is a absolute man with a plan. He is the founder of Barrett Asset Management. He is Ivan Barrett. Ivan, welcome back to Street Smart Success. Roger, it is so freaking good to be with you again, man. And thank you for the warm introduction. You are too kind, but go on, please. <laughs> you know, I mean it from my heart, Ivan. I mean, I uh, I do the podcast to learn, and I and I don't claim to really know a whole heck of a lot. But I will say is I've learned a lot since we podcasted last, and I was impressed then with your focus, and I'm impressed even more now. I heard an amazing quote at a, pod, a podcast I was listening to or somewhere. It doesn't matter the source, but I think it says it all, and I think it speaks to what you do, and it's this. And this, this is from the perspective of a passive investor, which you know I am, and it's this. I would rather invest with the guy that's done one thing 10,000 times than a guy that's done 10,000 things. Amen. Yeah. Uh, Bruce Lee said it best. Beware of the guy that's done one kick 10,000 times, not the guy that's learned 10,000 different kicks. That's probably yeah. where, where it came from. Yeah. It takes, uh, it takes a lot of discipline and repetition being, um, you know, a, a self-diagnosed shiny object, squirrel chasing attention deficit disorder, you know, C plus B minus student at best. <laughs> Uh, but thankfully, I learned enough lessons the hard way to um, and had some great mentorship and, and uh, experience in my life that I came to the conclusion, uh, focus on one thing and do that one thing really, really well. And that that just happens to be the um, the acquisition and management and uh, hopeful disposition here and there of, of multifamily here in the Midwest. Yeah. So uh, my hat's off to you. And, and I, I sent you an email, not not to get too fluffy here, but I've made a lot of investments in the last year and a half since we met. I've invested with you, your team, your company, the level of professionalism is unparalleled. And uh, wow. I appreciate and respect that. You got it, man. Well, so so enough of this stuff. Here's the question. You know, the market just when yeah. Zulu last year, we're, we're now in July of 22 and the interest rates all of a sudden went way higher, faster than anybody anticipated. And I guess my question is, how is it affecting your segment of the market? 
Well, I can't speak for everybody. Uh, I can certainly speak, you know, for myself and how we look at the world and then the market, um, you know, here in the Midwest. I guess I'll start with saying even here in in Q4 and Q1, uh, we saw absolute insanity in asset pricing, assets trading you know, below a 4% cap rate. And another way I like to like to illustrate that, especially for the folks out there that are in business, NOI, cap rate, well, that's just another sort of parallel term with EBITDA, which a lot of uh, business owners use. It's basically, your, you know, your earnings before you take out a few things for taxes. And in commercial real estate, we have our NOI. And typically, you know, depending on the asset class and the market, we're going to see uh, a multiple somewhere around 20 times NOI. And for those that are listening, that's that's the equivalent of like, say, a, a 5% cap rate. We saw that that multiple, maybe 22 at best, get up to 24, 25 times um, the, the cash flow. So it got pretty crazy. Then it came back down again to to more normalcy. We're pretty lucky because we've got a really big publicly traded uh, lender, uh, big bank here in Indiana, Merchants Bank Corp of Indiana, um, one of the best publicly traded banks. I think they got number one in the country last year. They're also a big multifamily originator of debt. They did $8 billion last year. So I don't have to go to a mortgage broker or an originator who's then going to go out and find me a loan product, charge me some some margins and profit for his hard work. We go directly to the source and get some really great debt terms, which haven't really changed all that much. Now, when we're buying our rate caps, those have gotten more expensive. But knowing that going into the deal um, makes it a, a lot more palatable to to underwrite. I've seen a lot of deals blow out, though. A lot of um, a lot of syndication groups tossing deals back, walking away from earnest money. I think you're going to see some skinny deals, see some potentially some uh, some turmoil, especially in the white hot markets outside of the Midwest, uh, places that I'd love to buy real estate, but have been too overpriced for me. Um, Southeast, uh, Texas, to some extent. And I want to say I've got a lot of friends that are in those areas that are still finding good deals, uh, some local guys. So there's there's always opportunities. But we are seeing some of that excess come out of the market, things getting back to normal, which is still a great multiple um, and still allows us to shoot for what we want to shoot for to uh, meet our objectives for our return targets to our investors. But I'm, I'm the guy that's excited, man. I think there's going to be some more opportunities. The last few years, Roger, I've felt really grateful um, to get four deals done in a year, to find four deals that actually made sense in this market to where we had a high degree of confidence and, and again, hitting those returns. The next couple of years, I think I'm going to be able to get maybe eight to 10 deals done a year, which is exciting. So multifamily, one of my favorite things about it and, and why I set to off on this adventure of focusing on this this asset class and growing this business is because if it's done right, you can do better in a recession. And one thing I, I learned very early in my career, which was the, one of the best gifts of my real estate career, was having a, a front row seat to 2008 at a young enough age to where I learned a lot, but didn't get a lot of damage. Um, it, certainly, it certainly felt pretty bad at the time, but not having any money, buying shoes at Walmart, <laughs> um, you know, uh, skimping by uh, with my wife because 
the few properties I had bought uh, on, with my own money were, were underwater. Uh, but that was my first eye opener to the big multifamily houses that were growing, expanding, taking more market share uh, through that. And, and I thought, well, if these, if these things called recessions, these corrections, if I go back in history, they always happen, right? Winter always comes. Spring always follows. Uh, but winter always comes. It's not just a Game of Thrones saying that is true in the uh, cyclical nature of uh, the business cycle. So I wanted to be in a position to where I would do better when the next one hit, not worse. I like sleeping at night. Uh, I, I like real estate, uh, specifically multifamily for those, for those facets. So right now um, kind of reminds me of the first couple months in COVID, which we were able to pick off uh, just a, a few deals in that span of time when everybody paused and thought, oh crap, this is the big one. People weren't getting on planes to go tour deals. Big institutions that don't need the kind of returns that I need weren't bidding on properties, which helped me find some, some really fantastic deals. And I think we're starting to see, see some of that come to fruition right now. Uh, one broker, uh, prolific broker, I was talking to him, you know, what, what are you seeing out there? And, and his answer was pretty short and to the point. He said, only the good buyers are left. Wow, man. Damn. You know, I guess comparing months ago is always an apples to oranges situation. But if you're saying that if they went as high as 24 to 25 times NOI and now it's back to let's just say you didn't say 20, but for the heck of it, let's say 20. Does that effectively mean prices have come down for like assets in the last uh, few months? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've gotten a couple of deals uh, in my queue that I probably would have been outbid on a few months ago. I mean, you know, that's the thing in this business. You've got to have a line in the sand to where if the pricing goes above that line, you're willing to walk away. Otherwise, you've already lost. And the one thing I can't change about a property is where it's located and what I paid for it. So that's that's just a big a big key to it all. But yeah, there's we're seeing some some pretty pretty juicy looking opportunities out there versus what we were seeing even late last year. I have a question about your competition in terms of Indiana and I know you've you've done I think you recently bought something in Iowa and Des Moines a super super great submarket. Have the big institutions come into those markets? And if so, how recent? Indianapolis has more and more been on larger players' radar for a while. So when I was first um, dancing around the edges of this business, Indianapolis was barely considered a secondary market. It was still considered a tertiary market. And then it sort of made the bottom of that list and started being thought of as a secondary market. Indies, the tortoise versus the hare. So it, it, it doesn't happen overnight here, which is good because you can, it's a little bit easier to read the future. You know, some people would laugh that Indianapolis is 10 years behind as a city than a lot of other major cities of its size and caliber. And, I'm, and my answer to that is, yeah, you're probably right in some ways, but that's great for a real estate guy because I can read the future. So Indianapolis isn't usually the first to do something, but when they finally get around to doing it, they do it really well. It is an economy that is um, benefiting greatly from the trends that were accelerated through COVID, um, e-commerce and logistics, very diverse in healthcare and insurance and some other things that, um, that, are, that are here to stay. 
So it's it's on a lot of lists. I'm very thankful to have a portfolio right now in Indy that we're you know we're recapping, and I'm sure you're going to want to talk about that here in a minute. Uh, and then with um, you know with some other markets we're looking at in the Midwest, like uh, Des Moines, Iowa, a um, little bit less well known, but also starting to pop up on more uh, people's radar. Um, for obvious reasons, it's like another indie, but it's a little bit smaller. The growth rate is high. The white collar um, suburban job picture is really strong. It's um, you go out there and you drive by a deal we're doing uh, that we bought. Um, gosh, maybe a year ago now. And Chick Fil A is getting built. Starbucks is getting built. Hotels, a big youth sports complex like the one we have here in Indianapolis. So I know how that pans out. Youth sports are huge right now in the Midwest. Um, And so it doesn't take very long to see all the things you want to see in a market. And I'd love to have a thousand units there. Um, We're getting pretty close, but it's, it's certainly getting harder to, uh, to find a good deal, but that that's okay. You know, if it's easy to find a good deal, you may have over, you you may have not uh, appropriately uh, evaluated the market. Good deals are always tough to find. There's opportunities, but it takes a lot of a lot of discipline and, and a lot of toad kissing to find the one. Hmm. In, in indie, so let's just I'll just throw some examples. You know, pension funds, life insurance, money. You know, private equity, I guess, could be smaller. But I mean, in terms of the big institutions that were only, let's say, in major markets, much less. Yeah. So uh, as opposed to secondary, are are those largest institutional players that have been only in primary markets? How long are they in India and how long have they been in India if, they, if they're there now? Oh, you know, that's... um. That's a tough question to answer directly. I don't mean to dodge it. I don't think I've ever gone head to head with Blackstone here. Um, but the you know the world of funds and institutions is so so varied. For instance, you could have a you know a, a university endowment that's only got twenty to fifty million in it, or you could have you know Harvard right that's um, billions and everything in between. So. I wouldn't tell you that we're necessarily tracking exactly what funds we're going up against at all times, but you can see it in the in in the deals that you do go after. If you're being outbid for something, it's typically because those larger institutions, um, however larger they are, whether it's by a factor of five or fifty, they typically are looking for a lower returns so of why apartments are so attractive to them is is the the underlying risk is low whereas the deals that we're going after we need a value add component because Roger for your equity you want a good shot at a at a double digit high teen low 20s IRR so I've got to find assets where I can add dollars to the bottom line um, to get that valuation high enough to where I'm confident that I can under promise and hopefully overproduce what I what I said I would, um, simply to keep you coming back for more and and um, and and maybe referring a few friends along the way. Our business is primarily word of mouth. Uh, second biggest source of of capital is word of mouth. First is repeat investors. 
Um, for all you aspiring entrepreneurs that are listening, it's a lot easier to, to keep and maintain a client than it is to get a new one. Uh, and if you take care of people, they, they bring more people your way. Doesn't happen overnight, um, but once you get enough momentum behind it and you stick to it, uh, it becomes an unstoppable flywheel. Indeed. Well, well said. You've got a great relationship with mechanics, uh, which you, you know, uh, elucidated upon, I guess. And you said that, you know, rate caps are getting more expensive. Are you and I I know in the past or I think I know in the past that you've done bridge, uh, a lot of bridge. Are you still for, for deals moving forward? Are you going to still be doing bridge or is it changing the lending products that you're buying? I want to come back to this point you said earlier about good relationships. I do. I would like to hit on the fact that the, the one thing that's more important than, than the real estate by far. But to answer your question directly, our debt products change just about every year. Again, Merchants Bank, our big partner, very thankful to have those guys in my backyard, have a personal relationship with them. They've been originating and servicing multifamily debt for 40 years. They've done HUD, FHA uh, product, um, Fannie, Freddie, Bridge, um, which by the way, bridge Bridge with them is great because it's direct to the source. I'm not going to somebody that's levered up his own debt fund uh, via a bank and then layered on fees and then looking for places to put it. I go directly to the source, uh, which gets me better terms. Hey, Street Smart listeners, I'd like to introduce a great partner for you. As you know, insurance is one of the biggest expenses on the P&L. That's why I'm recommending Assured Partners. Assured Partners helps you lower risk and therefore can save you tons of money down the road. They insure over 2 million market rate and affordable units and are the sixth largest insurance property broker in the U.S. If you want a roll-your-sleeves-up partner that blankets you with service, give Robert Band, vice president, a call. Robert thinks like a CFO because he was a CFO for many years. Give Robert a call now at 305-467-5909. You'll be glad you did. Right now, you could still classify what I'm doing as bridge, but I want to be I want to be clear, you know, a lot of people hear the word bridge and it's associated with like a uh, maybe a, a bad idea. There's a whole spectrum of bridge out there. On on one side of the spectrum, Roger, you've got the loan-to-own, loan shark type of bridge lenders that are hoping I screw up so they can take the property back for the debt um, and get a and steal something. Then on the far other side of the spectrum is where I I borrow from publicly traded bank. They're they're putting debt products out there to make their clients successful. They don't want to take deals back. They want their clients to succeed and borrow more. What we're doing is we're buying very flexible debt with rate caps. Why are we doing that? Well, it gives me exit options and flexibility, optionality. So I still buy the insurance in the form of a rate cap. So I know what my maximum exposure to interest rates are. But if my bet that interest rates will come down, because of a global slowdown and because of a, of a recession, probably a classic recession, 
um, if those rates come back down, I didn't lock myself into something above market that I now have to hold for a, a longer period. Because the way we set up these assets with a little more equity, the way we do our A and B shares, you know, the cash flow in the first couple of years is not as important as the enterprise value or the value of that asset after we execute our business plan. There, I want maximum flexibility. So if it's 2008, 2.0, interest rates are high and it's a bad time to sell real estate, Roger, you and I ain't selling. We're going to hold our assets in cash flow because that's the time to be buying more. If rates, if rates are low and it's a really good time to sell assets, which we did last year on occasion, we can also do that with very little prepayment penalty versus a long-term fixed rate deal right now comes with a very stiff prepayment penalty in most cases. For example, got a deal in Dayton, Ohio. Uh, would be immensely profitable for my investors to sell it today. And we would more than exceed our 10-year return projections, which is what we were thinking we would hold that for when we bought it back in 17, I want to say. So basically, execute a 10-year plan in five years. Well, if I sold that today, my prepayment penalty, I think, is still about six million bucks, which really would crush returns to investors. At the time, I thought, how great would this be? We'll get a 10-year uh, you know, Fannie Mae product with a fixed rate loan. And I think we fixed that deal at 450 or 475 you know, at the time, thinking that was a great rate. Well, could have done better keeping it on a floater and just buying a rate cap instead. I get it. Even I can understand that. Hey, I have a question for you. So you, you said that, you know, hey, relationship even more important than the real estate. It didn't, not necessarily literally, but I get I get the sentiment of the statement. Uh, actually, in, in all in all realities, it is it, it's not sentiment only. It's it's fact. I recently got to speak about this, and, and a you know a group of young entrepreneurs once wanted to know some of the some of the things I've learned along the way, and what could I do to help them? And I was developing like ten or twelve things that I that I've learned some some good golden nuggets. And one of them that it, it, it's so simple, but it's so hard to pull off. And it's why most people don't grow a, a successful business. It's because they fail to realize or to, or to believe in, or, or for whatever reason, fail somehow and, and not correct it, that the, the people, the people at BAM are way more important than the real estate, way more important. It, anybody can go out there and buy a piece of property. It's what happens the day you close it and everything thereafter. The people that underwrite the property before we buy it, the, the folks that manage it, the, the dozens of people on this team that are way smarter than me in an area um, that is mission critical to our success. Okay, along those lines, um, your relationship with mechanics in particular, and I didn't know they were indie, that's why I love doing the podcast, I learned things is how relevant is that, that, okay, and, and I guess I can just say common sense, you could basically have lunch with them once a month if you wanted, because you're right there. So I guess, how relevant is that? And you also pointed out that they're public. What makes that relevant, you know, where the rubber meets the road? So when you say mechanics, I'm assuming that you mean like the maintenance technicians and supervisors. Oh, no, mechanics that, bank. Merchants. No, merchants. I'm, so, I'm sorry. <laughs> merchants. No, 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 no. That's okay. That's okay. Yeah. So the, the question about merchants, um, what, say that again. Well, 
in terms of the relationship, at the top of when we first started talking, you, you did point out that they're in indie and that they're public. And I was wondering what makes that relevant, the two of those things separate. What makes those things relevant? Yeah, the first the first thing is the fact that I I have the names and cell phones of the majority shareholders of that bank that still tightly control it um, is incredibly important to me. I saw a lot of turmoil in the last banking crisis where people didn't know who they had money borrowed from if it was CMBS. Um, they didn't have personal relationships you know, with their lenders. And so working through bumps in the road became all the more difficult, right? And and that's really stuck with me and um, feel just so, so freaking blessed, man, to have such a, a big force in my industry headquartered here in Indy that I've got, uh, and, and folks I've got personal relationships with. I would take the chairman of the board, uh, who bought that bank many years ago and now um, is having a lot of fun, but able to take him for lunch and, and, and glean wisdom from his experience. The guys that are running that now, we're in a, a charitable organization together and got to know them very well outside of business. That, that to me is so meaningful. It's easy to overlook when things are going well, um, but when things don't go according to plan to have, have those personal relationships. And frankly, I can't believe other syndicators are still doing this, but guys, if you're listening, don't get your debt quotes after you've got the deal under contract. I was listening to a guy the other day that, that um, was talking about how he had, to, he had to throw a deal back and walk away and his earnest money, thankfully, was refundable, but he had to let a deal go because he waited, you know, 45 days into the process to, to get his, his debt terms from some different lenders. I don't put a deal under... LOI, let alone contract, until my lender's already underwritten it and given me terms for that specific deal, what the the exact amount they're willing to loan and at what terms, at what terms. So they're like another extension of our, of our underwriting due diligence team in that they're sizing up a deal for us before we've put it under LOI and getting them to do that. That's, you know, that's a relationship. That's not just something you can, you know, walk in off the street and say, Hey, size this deal up for me. I think there was a second part to that question about them being public. Yeah. Yeah. Just size matters as big as they are. They're doing some really creative things on the, uh, on the multifamily loan side. So they've got their own pools of debt capital. Well, I'll just give you the bottom line. So my, interest rate at what I'm borrowing at for these deals uh, hasn't really ticked up yet. It probably will on the next rate hike, but I haven't seen an increase in, in, in rates all that much yet. Um, I know other borrowers have, certainly if you're going to Fannie and Freddie, or if you're getting bridge debt from somebody that's, that's getting it from somebody else, you know their cost of capital has gone up. My cost of capital has almost remained flat so far. It will go up here in the future, and we are underwriting it going up, but it hasn't gone up for me yet like it has for some others. All right. So uh, that is a concrete benefit. On, you had mentioned A shares, B shares, and I think you do, because I watched a, a webinar you guys put out a couple weeks ago, and you, you, you issue approximately a third of the total to A shares, 30-so percent-ish. And I was wondering, how do you arrive at that number? 
as opposed to some people do 10% or there, there's just different, you know, uh, amounts of allocation people do to a share. And I was wondering what's, how do you arrive at that? Yeah, we, we modeled it a bunch of different ways. And we look at every asset that goes in the fund individually and we say, okay, how much a share could, could that asset handle in totality? And most models come back where a property could handle 50, sometimes 60% equity in A shares, meaning it's got enough cash flow the day we close it to pay the A shares 10% annual coupon monthly from the start. Okay? Yeah. Because that's what the A shares are for. I'm getting big checks from folks that are at a stage in their life where they're looking for yield. So a guy that's never invested with me before, I've known him for 10 years, he just wrote me a check for $2 million in A because he sold his business, he lives in Naples, Florida, and he wants to make, uh, he wants to live off the cash flow from his investments without eroding his principal. So we look at that and then it's a little art and science. We don't wanna load up a property with 50% A shares uh, because we want there to be some margin there. We want there to be some excess or surplus cash above the A's. So it's kind of like it's kind of like running the engine. We don't want to run it too hot. We don't want to we don't want to uh, rev up the RPMs too high. And so on most deals, it's again it's a little more art than science. We've said okay, we're gonna we're gonna cap the A shares at 34 percent, something like that, just so there's enough cash flow coming off that deal um, to provide for some margin of error. Because the one thing I can't do, Roger because it'll screw up my track record and my, my, uh, my machine is I can't miss an A payment. Technically I can, right? It's equity, it's real estate. But if I miss an A payment, I screw up a ton of capital, uh, political capital, track record and investor confidence that I've built up. So I have to make sure that barring Armageddon, <laughs> those deals can pay those 10% A shares right out of the gate. And then I think, because I, I did A shares, I, you know, I, I don't think it's a big deal me saying that, and, I'm, and, and I may do more. The part of the, part of the, the, your approach is B share guys that know they're going to get a higher IRR. I don't think they, you don't perform out. I don't think cash flow for those guys at all first couple years. Is that correct? Or am I thinking of something else? No, you're correct. The model, the model we're looking at, you know, says to the says the B share uh, investor is going to get some cash flow, probably, you know, three percent maybe in the first year, maybe it's four the second year. But there's a lot of variability there. So we we like to educate our B investors. Hey, don't count on any cash flow coming from the Bs until we're farther along in the project. And then of course, the the real payday for me. Uh, as the as the general partner and for the B shares is when we sell it or refinance it in some cases, but mostly we're looking to sell and go do it again somewhere else. And for a certain profile of investor that what I'm typically seeing is they're still in their earning years. They've got cash flow coming in from a career, uh, a business. They're looking to maximize the appreciation and they're taking a lot more B and then we get a lot of folks that are somewhere in the middle, 50-50, 60-40, 70-30, et cetera, um, that want a mix of cash flow and growth. 
And then, you know, I've got those guys, like I told you about earlier, um, that are retired, semi-retired, had a big liquidity, a liquidity event with the sale of a business, and they're looking for a safe yield uh, that they can live off of without seeing their bank balance go down. So why do you do B plus A minus class as opposed to C or A plus or what's, why is that your, your yeah, wheelhouse? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like most, I started off buying shitty. Oops, excuse me. That's <laughs> so my one. That's my okay. One, uh, it's okay. It's my one profane word today. Yeah. Um, like most, I started off buying, you know, lower class C C assets. I learned a lot because I thought I bought a C and I bought a D, uh, thirty five <laughs> units, back when I knew a lot less than I did today, and and uh, was trying to manage that thing myself. Uh, paid a lot of tuition on that deal, and then over time, you know, we've we've adapted to the marketplace. So the short answer, Roger, is that that's the best risk-adjusted return in the marketplace that I plan. What I mean by that is the pricing at which I can buy B plus to A minus versus C projects is very thin. There's a lot of new money, new groups in the market that are way overpaying for C properties right now, uh, in my opinion. Now, that's all subjective. But if I'm going to buy a C asset where I've got to do a heavy value add, turn over the tenant class, um, I need at least a 25 IRR, maybe 30 with confidence. If I can get somewhere close to that, but buy an asset that's 40, 50 years newer, already has some great higher paid residents, white collar job residents, and I can still find value add, um, then it would, be, it would be stupid of me to buy anything else. So what's happened in the market for us lately is that B plus and A minus the 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 difference between the rent there maybe fifteen sixteen seventeen hundred dollars now and what a plus new product would fetch twenty five twenty seven hundred dollars give or take there's enough there's enough delta there to where I can go in raise rents and reduce expenses uh, about half of my value add the last couple of years has been an expense reduction you know dollar saved is the same thing as a dollar rent raised. I've been able to find those deals in in um, in that asset class. So still get the value add, a lot less risk, functional obsolescence with the units. Um, it it really, I think, through that prism makes perfect sense. You know, I was I did a podcast last week or the week before with a guy in Phoenix, and and this is a hundred percent anecdotal. So you know, sure, who knows? He said C classes in Phoenix is getting crushed quote unquote crushed how prices yeah going it, 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 the, the prices are coming way down you know with what's going they on have to um especially like you know a phoenix historically has been a boom bust market and people tend to forget that when things are booming but i'm a bit i'm a bit of a what you call a mean reversionist and that i i believe that things typically revert back to the mean and that pendulum swings harder the farther away you get from the mean, whether it's down or up. Um, so if I was more of a, a cowboy, um, you know, Phoenix would be a great area to try to time the market, right? You, you sell when things are hot and then you, you know, 
Um, you wait till for it to crash, and then you start picking up scraps again. On the uh, on the uh, you said that half of your value add has been on the expense side, and I guess what are the most common examples of that? None of your damn business. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody always wants to know that question. That's a little bit of the secret sauce. It's not so secret. I mean, we're just really good operators in one sense. We know we don't know one way to save 20 bucks, but we know 20 ways to save $1. We've got the best maintenance department in the Midwest. Um, very thankful for the guys running that that bought into my vision of having um, a world-class maintenance department where, where people would value their jobs and want to work and treating those folks like gold um, has made a, the world a difference on our maintenance and repairs costs. We train maintenance guys on the budget and asset management skills. None of those guys get that training anywhere else. So having, having those front frontline troops understand that it's not just my money, it's my investor's money and how budgets work and, and, um, you know, costs, um, return on investment for, for different things. It's made a world of difference. There's a ton of technology out there that we've been able to implement to save dollars here, save dollars there. And that's on the, that's on the apartment P&Ls. On, on my management P&L, my operating company, we spend every dollar we make. We're barely break even because it doesn't have to be a profit center for me. The profit is when we execute the business plan, we sell assets. The management company is a beautiful machine built to execute the business plan, not to make money. And so I get to spend a lot of time as we grow on hiring more people, more leadership, more training, more systems and tools to help them do their jobs well. So, well, gosh, now I have to. I mean, I, I passed the threshold where I could just work harder on my business a long time ago uh, and thankfully figured out that what got me to that point wouldn't get me to where I wanted to go. And so I had to really shift um, the philosophy there. You know, at the time, much smaller than I was today, Roger, you know, I was working about as hard as I could and not failing at being a dad and being married, uh, but certainly not getting much more than a C uh, in those categories on my report card. And so working smart, finding, finding better people, growing an organization has been... Um, my chief chief aim and pursuit for uh, for several years now. It's been a lot of fun. Well, and you've done a fantastic job uh, for for the listeners' sake. Uh, I actually went and and I I wanted to see Ivan's operation with my own two eyes, uh, and it's absolutely as real as he's describing it. I was very impressed. I want to uh, thank you. Um, I, I got to give one more shout out though to the the, uh, the leadership team here: Emily, Jerry, Cat, Adam, especially Tony coming on board. Um, you know, some of these folks at the top here that, have, that, that especially some like Jerry and Emily and Kat that came in early, way, way before what you saw, Roger, and bought in to the idea that wasn't reality yet and bought into the, the vision. Uh, I must have been on my A game that day because it certainly didn't look like what it looks like now. Um, but those folks coming in early, buying into what we wanted to do, and then taking the proverbial uh, baton and doing a better job in maintenance and culture and hiring than, than I ever could has just been uh, so gratifying to watch. And in many ways, I feel like a, it's my fourth child and it's sort of growing in some ways on its own now. I still get to shape it, 
give advice and and sort of play that fatherly role. Uh, but as we approach, you know, the teenager years here uh, for the organization, it's it's really uh, taking on a life of its own. It's it's just such a blast. Congratulations. I mean, you know, that it's a cliche about people, but, uh, you know, the higher people smarter than you and let them do. It's a cliche. But if you've done it, you go, it ain't it ain't a cliche. It's real. Um, it's so real. Yeah, it's, it's tough. And I slip I slip out of it sometimes. It's like any other muscle. You know, you got to let people grow and make their own mistakes and learn from them and um, uh, getting out of their way and not obsessing over everything. Um is uh, it's not easy, uh, but when I'm when I'm practicing good habits there and getting out of people's way, good things usually happen. Good things happen. You know, a detail point from just to clarify from you know a number of minutes ago when we were talking about a class A shares versus B shares, and you know you said kind of part our part science, and you said you know these these asset by asset could really withstand even 50% A shares if you want it, but you're being more conservative about it and you're doing, you know, a third, 33, 34%. At the same time, you said that interest rates are, they they have to go up. They just are because merchants cost of, you know, their capital, et cetera. So I guess, will that impact the percentage share of A shares that you, these, these properties can generate? Yes, you have to model for how your cash flow can change due to your your debt service, um, and so we run what what's often would be called like stress tests on deals that we're looking at buying. So, so it could go down to twenty percent or something, you know, theoretically. No, no. For example, um, we we stress test the portfolio. Okay. Um, if all of our interest rates hit the rate cap, so say we've got rate caps at 6% interest, um, meaning if they go beyond six, um, uh, our, interest, our, our payment doesn't go up because we bought this insurance policy called a rate cap. So we want to know that if, if interest rates hit their, their maximum rate under our rate cap, how much margin do we have left to pay the A's? Right. So I guess what I was saying is, could they go down to only hypothetically 20% instead of 33% and, and you're saying not necessarily or? Oh, you know, if I wasn't a good picker of real estate and I, I didn't underwrite properly, yeah, you could, you could seriously, yeah, you could run into a scenario where you don't have enough, um, where you've sold too many A shares. Now we're not going to hit that scenario because we've, we planned for that accordingly. Is that yeah, is that I, what you were asking? Yeah, I think you nailed it. All right, let's go to the capitalization recap, which is a fascinating development. Yeah. Uh, you've got, and correct me if I'm wrong, my friend, because I I'm not really well versed in this, but I want to you know talk to you about it. And this all I think came up since we scheduled this conversation. You have one fund acquiring a new fund acquiring an existing fund, I guess. When that happens, sort of, but let's go ahead. You go ahead. Go ahead. Well, let's let I just want to make sure we're on the same page here. So, our, our new fund so far has acquired two assets from an existing fund, so it didn't acquire the fund. That fund sold two assets to a new group of investors with BAM. Okay, that fund three, the fund we have now, may 
very likely will buy at least one or two more assets that are already in BAM's portfolio. One certainly from fund one, and then there's another one out there that kind of meets the same criteria. What we've got going on here, and cut me off anytime or interject, don't let me ramble on too long, but what we've got going on is a unique scenario that that isn't really that unique. I spend a lot of time studying what the big what the big folks do. And this is something that happens all the time out there in real estate. But most retail investors that are investing with syndicators like me haven't seen this yet. Now, I guarantee you, uh, I guess I can't guarantee you, but I'll, I'll bet you a big cup of coffee um, that, you, that now, just like with the AMB shares, that now you see a lot of people copying what I did. And, and for the record, I modeled some other smart guys that were doing something similar. Joe Fairless, I think, was one of the first. Um, I took what he did, and I think I made it a little bit better for, for how we approach it. Um, but that's what we all do, right? We model what's working. I am modeling what some of the big guys do in that we have a unique situation where we bought some great deals in COVID. We increased the NOIs primarily just by raising rents and reducing costs. And if we sold those deals right now for a market price, um, we've, well, we have. We sold two deals for a, a market price. The, the fund one uh, made returns in excess of what we targeted faster than what we thought we would hit. The reason why I didn't just sell them to somebody else is because it became readily apparent that there would be a lot of meat on the bone for the next buyer. Because now these assets are in a position in their own marketplace and the neighborhoods they're in where if I bring in new capital to make physical improvements this time, remember I said I didn't do that last time, I didn't have to. Now they're positioned where I now come in with new capital and I add granite countertops and new cabinets and new lighting packages. I refresh the clubhouse and the pool furniture. There is a demonstrated ability in that hyper-local marketplace to raise rents again, three to $400 per renovated unit. And I've got about, oh gosh, almost a thousand units in that portfolio that would benefit from that. If that deal were for sale right now from somebody else, that would be the best acquisition target for me in this marketplace. So here's a dumb question. So is the reason you're not just keeping them is because you need new slash more capital to execute on getting the incremental three to 400 bucks a year? Exactly. Yep. I need, I need new capital, new debt to execute that. And rather, rather than sell those deals to an institutional partner, which by the way, I had guys on the East Coast um, offering to make it rain term sheets from in, institutional buyers that would come in, be my new partner, take out all you small, uh, smaller LPs and be one new partner, write one big check, keep me in the deal as the manager, general partner. And, you know, we, we thought long and hard about doing that. That was definitely the, the, the easy path. And then as we thought more about it, we said, hey, it's going to be harder, but we owe it to our investors to be loyal to them and give them the opportunity to take another bite on the apple. It's the path less traveled. Uh, but that's benefited me many times in my life by, by veering on the path less traveled. And so that's what we decided to do. Uh, definitely confused the heck out of a lot of people uh, that hadn't seen that before. My, my biggest, smartest investors were like, yeah, okay, I get it. You know, you're delivering me more than you said you would. 
and then you've got this opportunity that's clear and uh, defined and, and fully baked to do it again. But then the average, you know, 50, 50K clip investor um, needed a lot more education. And, um, and that's what we've been, we've been doing. And it's, it's been working really great. It, it kind of reminds me of the first time we went from single assets to a fund. You know, when I first did my, my first fund back in uh, 2019, started raising money for it, there were a lot fewer syndicators doing funds. And I literally had to be on the phone with just about every investor in my database at that time. Because most of them said, said to me, Roger, they said, hey, I'm not really a fund kind of investor. I like to look at the single asset deals. And I, had, I just had to get on the phone and educate them. Hey, here's why I'm moving to a fund. Here's why it's good for me. Here's why it's really good for you too. And that's what makes a great partnership. And we never had to look back and, and almost all of our investors converted to fund. And now we're having to do the same thing with this recap because it, it, it's not widely known in, in those retail circles like it is in some of the more sophisticated, bigger shops out there. And we got to educate folks again. Hey, here's why it's good for me as a sponsor. Um, but here's why it's also why it's also good for you as the uh, as the limited partner. And a lot of it's trust. You know, a lot of people have to trust the fact that we haven't worked this hard to build this reputation and this track record that we have um, to just throw it all away. We would not do this if we weren't supremely confident in being able to hit the objectives. Do the LPs in the assets getting acquired by Fund 3, do they have the option to take their money off the table and go play somewhere else or how does that work? No, not yet because we're only in, we're only between year two and three. So about halfway through year two of fund one. Oh, I see. So the fund has a reinvestment provision to where I as the manager uh, can automatically reinvest those proceeds. So we'll do a tax distribution because there will be some gains that are mostly offset. But in fund one, when we sold those assets, we went out and bought another asset for fund one that we uh, have a high degree of confidence in executing the business plan on that deal. So in, instead of having a, a liquidity event, we're keeping the capital and growing it again, now targeting somewhere between a three and four X equity multiple net back to the investor when it's all said and done. And I think in, in several scenarios, um, will likely hit that 4x number over the over the life of the fund. Yeah, that's outstanding. Um, how, how do you arrive at the price? That's the trickiest part um, because, you, you know, you got to pay a fair price to fund one, but it's still got to be a, a, a good deal for fund three. So the way we did that is, I don't know if you remember this or not, but all our funds are independently audited by a, a national accounting firm headquartered here in Indy. And really, the reason why we do that is just so new investors can can build trust with us quickly and know that we're not another Bernie Madoff. So it's kind of table stakes for this this level is you get your funds audited. So part of that audit, um, we have to get national brokers' opinions of value on what they'd sell for on the open market. So we used those national uh, brokers' opinions of value on what they would sell for on the open market, uh, and then back those up uh, with third-party appraisals. Because even though it's not fully an arm's length transaction, we and the lender treat it like it is. So it's a, it's a full sale. There's new loan docs, new appraisals, new legal documents for the new operating company that, that's, that's, that's buying the, um, 
the current one. Well, uh, it sounds like a very interesting, logical process um, that I think uh, is going to make a lot of people happy. We are chatting away. It's been a great conversation. I guess let me ask the uh, a concluding question. And, you know, looking back in the years you've been doing this, what would you say is the biggest lesson you learned? Oh, man, there's so many. You know, the one that's really been ringing out for me lately is we've been hyper-focused on growing and scaling this the right way so that we don't, we don't trip. Um, is that what we talked about earlier is the people of an organization are, are the most important part. It doesn't matter how good of a deal we buy, uh, how great the financial model looks. It really comes down to the human beings in the organization. I could give you a hundred more lessons past that one, but that's, that's, I think, the most important one. You know, even as an, a solopreneur in my spare bedroom where I started this company, um, I sort of had to take a big gulp, you know? And I can't remember, Roger, exactly what got me thinking about this. It was probably something I was reading at the time. But I thought to myself, especially for me, managing people, operating a business uh, of people is going to be way way freaking harder than the real estate deals. And I'm going to trip and make more mistakes at that than of anything else. But the only way to have a big company, and I like, I like the, the Robert Kiyosaki's definition from the cash flow quadrant of a big business. You know, that's a 500 person organization where I can walk away from it, come back in a year, and it's bigger than when I left. If you want, if, if that's what you're aiming for, which is what I am, you can't do it without people. You gotta have, gotta have people. Um, what what would you say some of the um, uh, new mistakes newer operators are making? Oh, you know, I'll 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 keep it positive right now. I think newer operators really need to be patient. To you folks out there that are aggregating equity for somebody else's deal, um, I think there's a reckoning coming. Please remember that when you raise capital for somebody else's deal, if that deal goes bad, that your reputation goes bad with it. It's easy when everything's going up, but you've, you've only got one rep, right? And you can destroy that pretty quickly um, by putting capital, other people's capital into deals you don't have any control over just to get money out the door. There are no shortcuts in this game. It may seem like there are on Instagram or TikTok, but the, talk to successful people out there and, and ask them open-ended questions about where they, how they got to where they got to. And most of them are going are gonna to give you a, a, an honest answer that it took a lot of hard work and there just are no shortcuts. Um, and if something looks like a, a really great shortcut, then it's, it's probably a, a booby trap. Those are just a couple things that come to mind. Last question. I lied because I said that was last question, but it, it ends up. As That's OK. We can, do, we can do this as long as you want, Roger. I enjoy these. <laughs> Here's a question. And this is a hard one. And I'm, I'm like you, you, you get, you get the ideas from other people. And as do I, there's a gal that does a podcast. I think it's such a good question. And it's this, what is something people don't know about you? Um, I think I've mentioned it in the past, but I think very few people know that back in 2009, when I was trying to convince my wife to marry me, I was negative a couple hundred grand in debt because I had been doing real estate the wrong way. 
I would, for about a period of, I think, four to six months, I would get in my car four or five nights a week. I would drive 45 minutes to a suburb really far from my house. And I would deliver Papa John's pizza to keep cash flow coming in while we were trying to figure out what the heck we were going to do. And I did that to stay in the real estate game when I could have easily gone out and got a sales job, making way much more, much more money than that. I ate some humble pie to stick in the real estate game. No, no pun intended, by the way. <laughs> look, look what I did there. Good catch. Hey, you got to know I'm listening. You know what? You're my hero. I, I was not expecting that answer because I didn't know. And if I were there, I, I'd even though you're several inches taller than me, and if you if I were there and if you were permitting it, I'd give you a big hug because, man, good for you. That is awesome. Thank <laughs> that, you, Rod. Thank you. I, I, I'd wrap you up in a bear hug if you were here, brother. <laughs> And if that doesn't say what your character is, oh my God, man, you deserve, you know, 5,000 people working for you, man, because uh, you've danced with the devil. You've been down some serious dark alleyways and uh, I'm just laughing my ass off. I mean, that is fantastic. Uh, this is your podcast, not mine. I never did that, but uh, let's put it this way. You know, I, I have my own business. I've had my own business. And, and early on, uh, yeah, uh, I, I wasn't living like I am now. I try to explain that to my wife. We weren't married when, when I started my business. And she nods her head like she understands, but she doesn't. But she doesn't need to. How does one get a hold of uh, Barrett Asset Management? You, however you want to answer that question. You look up Ivan Barrett, B-A-R-R-A-T-T. I'm pretty easy to find out there. We try to do a pretty good job on social media. BAM, BAM Capital, the BAM companies. Uh, we're pretty easy to find. 317-762-2625. 317-762-2625. I hope I, I hope I gave some good news to your audience out there and that, you know, you don't have to be the smartest tool in the shed and you don't have to come from money uh, and you don't need a big network in the beginning. All you really need is to, to want it bad enough to focus on it day and night, to live it and breathe it and to refuse not to get up when you get knocked down. Amen. I think that concludes our discussion, Ivan, and I uh, look forward to round three next year. Looking forward to it, Roger. Talk Thank you, you for having me on again. It's, it's always a pleasure to be here. You got it. See you. Bye-bye. <laughs>